Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast, on which I chat with our writers and the larger Liberties circle about whatever is on our minds. In today's episode, I talk with Sean McCreesh, whose essay, Hatborough Blues, appears in the first issue of Liberties about um, his experience growing up very much inside the opioid crisis. His essay in the first issue is a memoiristic piece about that experience. You don't have to have read the essay to understand the episode, but if you like the conversation we have here, head over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe. If you subscribe now, your first issue will be um, issue one of Liberties. Yeah, you know, people think it's like hillbilly elegy or something, but it's not. The first thing I remember thinking about what we now call the opioid crisis is that it was making everything really boring. It was 2010. I was in 11th grade and at a house party about which I had been excited all week. I had with me a wingman in the form of my buddy Kurt and a fresh pack of smokes and, please don't think less of me, 750 milliliters of absolute blueberry vodka. In short, all that was needed for a good night. And yet the party was a bust. It seemed that every third kid was dipped out, as we called those in drug-induced comas, lit cigarettes still dangling from their lips. Even the terrible rap music wasn't enough to wake them. Nobody was fighting. Nobody was fornicating. Nobody was doing much of anything. There was nothing about this sorry shindig that set it apart from many others just like it, which were still to come. But it sticks in my mind now for a melancholy reason. It was the point at which I realized something was very wrong. What follows is not some hardcore requiem for a dream kind of yarn. Different movies apply. My high school experience was plenty dazed and confused, but with shades of train spotting and maybe a flash of drugstore cowboy. It was like the breakfast club. If Claire had carried Percocet in her purse and the dope in Bender's locker had been white, not green. This is a story about how a kid who enters high school as a Led Zeppelin-loving pothead can leave four years later with a needle sticking out of his arm, or not leave at all. It is a tale of a town and a generation held hostage by Purdue Pharma, the story of every place on the edge of a big East Coast city flush with cheap heroin and prescription pills. Maybe you already know how it goes. So, Sean, you started your essay with the party in 11th grade, Um, but the story probably starts a little earlier than that before you started realizing how intense and out of control things were. So if you were going to start from like back when things were just fun, where would you date that? Yeah, I would say, um, and later in the essay, I I mentioned that, you know, it, it began very much like the typical high school experience. So, you know, summer of eighth grade going into high school, you're you know, trying to find somebody to buy beer for you with your buddies and, you know, you're smoking a little pot, you're rolling joints, you're drinking beers in the woods. And it was very run of the mill. Um, And that's just how things were. But um, because we live in a time where there are just so many prescription pills floating around and opiates, um, I think, you know, teenagers are always going to want to experiment. And um, everything was just so readily available that, with each year that passed, the drugs got harder and more ubiquitous. And um, that's really what I wanted to capture in the piece, which was that it was, um, you know, it didn't start off as a hellscape. It was just like, 
you know, we fell down the well, basically. And some people kind of realized where they had to draw the line. Um, but a lot of people didn't because I think when you're a teenager, you're just doing everything. And um, unfortunately, you know, with opiates, once you do it, there's almost no going back. You say that um, you lived in a time when that's what it was like. Did you have the sense that, you know, people who are a little bit older than you didn't have anything like this? And did it feel, while while it was beginning, did it feel normal? Or did you feel like you were doing something nobody else was really doing? I mean, like, this was specific to your age demographic? Well, the older kids um, who had, you know, a few grades above and stuff, they had they had already been through it. Um, I don't, I think it's just gained intensity and it's still gaining intensity. Um, but certainly like you'd hear about older kids doing these drugs and that's part of the draw when you're younger. I think the clear distinction is between our generation and and our parents, um, and, and the people in between Gen X. And I think a lot of the parents maybe weren't equipped to deal with it. You know, they're used to the eighties or the early nineties. Um, and they just, people just didn't understand how lethal it was, um, with the pills floating around. So, um, yeah. Did you have a sense that your, like your parents were completely freaked out by what was happening? Did they know how bad it was? I don't think they really knew fully. Um, and even the ones that did, there's only so much you can do because it's everywhere. Um, I think, you know, there's a huge stigma around addiction. There still is um, less so now because it's just been blown so open. I mean, kids are just dropping dead left and right. It's not really a dirty little secret you can sweep under the rug anymore. So many people have lost a kid to this. Um, but yeah, at the time, I think... Um, a lot of it was a, a little subterranean. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not once someone's doing heroin, everybody can tell, but in the run up to that, if you're doing Xanax and you're popping per- Percocet every weekend and the way you unwind with your friends when you're 15 years old is like, you know, you take a bottle of Klonopin, all that stuff's kind of easy to hide for a while. How, how is that easy to hide? Um, it's just, I don't know, you know, there's no smell to it. And, you know, it just seems different than a Coke addiction. Um, if you're hanging out out of sight and you're just doing a bunch of pills, um, you know, it doesn't really start to become noticeable until much later when you're a full-blown opioid addict. And then everyone can just see it. So how long did it take? Let's, like, start from the beginning and talk about, like, what the what the ratcheting up looked like. It started, like, at the end of, end of eighth grade. Yeah, I would say the way it goes for most kids, at least in my experience, is like, so eighth grade, ninth grade, you're drinking, you're smoking pot, probably still into ninth grade. And then you start small. Um, The older kids are doing pills. People have them. They start to become a presence at parties. So you start off, you know, you take some Klonopin, you mix that with booze. It makes you feel pretty wavy. You know, you start doing some Xanax. Before you know it, you're snorting little lines of Percocet, Perc 10s, Perc 30s. Uh, then you, this is where, this is to me, in my mind, the definitive line is when you move from Percocet to Oxycontin and I did a lot, but I never did Oxycontin. And I talk about this in the essay and, uh, why my experience ended up being so differently because of this one choice. But, um, 
Percocet inevitably leads to Oxycontin. You know, they're both opiates. Oxycontin is synthetic heroin. Um, people would do, we call them 40s or 80s, OC40s or the double dosage OC80s. And once you do that, that's pretty much the end for you because you, I mean, not for everyone, that sounded insensitive, but you, uh, you start doing oxys and they're just so strong and they take such a hold over you. I mean, nobody can resist their powers, not full-blown adults who are prescribed them after injuries, war veterans, whatever, certainly not 15-year-olds. Um, and once, you know, people were doing oxys a lot, which seemed like by 11th grade, um, the next thing after that is just straight heroin because it's a lot cheaper. You can get a bag of heroin that will get you just as fucked up for $10. Um, and you start doing that. And then, you know, you can, you, you, you know, who's doing heroin. It's just, it's just abundantly obvious. Um, and did those people, were they embarrassed about it? Was there a stigma against like, you can tell, oh, that person's doing heroin or was it not? Yeah, I think, I think by the end, by senior year and certainly in the years after, um, when I would still go home, well, I moved to New York after high school, but going home, um, people were still dying. People are still dying. Once you're older, you're 18 or older, you are sort of ashamed of it because you just, your whole life starts to fall apart and people try to hide it. And an addict can look you straight in the face and tell you that they haven't touched anything in months while they're just smacked out of their mind. Um, and also there's a lot of collateral damage. I mean, when you are doing that sort of drug for, for a long time, you, you've probably stolen from your friends, you've, you know, borrowed money, you don't give it back. You disappear for months at a time. You look like shit, your body's falling apart. Uh, people get embarrassed, you know, and, not to mention just the external stigma that the rest of the town puts on you. So yeah, people do start to try to hide it, but um, it's always clear. How many, like, I'm sorry to be crass enough to ask for numbers, but how many, how many people end up like that? Like percentage wise from your, from your groups or from your class? Mm, It's hard to tell. Um, You know, it hits certain social circles, circles harder than others, but that's not even necessarily true because there were a lot of kids that were on the football team and the lacrosse team that ended up like this. I was more friends with like, you know, metalheads and punk kids and skaters. And, um, it really touched most of the social circles. Um, you know, I am lucky because neither my, my brother or sister, they're both younger. They stayed away from opiates. Um, my group of like best, best friends, got pretty hardcore, but they kind of pulled back at the last minute. But, um, it's really like, it's, it's the town at large. So, um, and I, I try to capture this in that piece that like, I can look back at certain kind of tentpole marquee moments of my high school years, you know, really good house parties or a really fun summer or something like that. And it's sort of the ensemble cast, the people that maybe weren't my best friends, but we're at all the parties and, would give you a ride or you'd known them since you were in kindergarten. And there are just whole groups that are completely erased and gone. So I can look back and, you know, I remember, Oh, the first time I smoked weed, you know, standing around in the woods with a group of five kids, two of them are dead. And so was the one who sold it to us, that sort of thing. Did you have any sense or did, did your older sister, you have an older sister, right? No, no, they're both younger. Okay. So older friends, did anybody, was there any point where you knew people who were older than you were wondering like who from your group this was going to happen to? Was this something that was happening to pre to the older 
grades? Um, or was it like a complete shock to you that there are all these people who are sort of the background music in your childhood who are gone now? And that was not something that you were expecting. Like how much of this is the thing that we call the opioid crisis, which is specific to our generation? Um, how unusual is that? Like how jarring is it? Um, yeah, again, I think some of the kids who were a little older than me had already been dealing with it. Um, I think it's for the, the Gen Xers and the parents. Um, my mom is young. She's 50. So she and all her friends, they're just stunned. They can't rationalize this at all. I mean, for them, growing up was like, you know, you smoke a joint while tailgating at a Motley Crue concert or something. For them to see all these 15, 16, 17-year-olds dropping dead left and right is just unfathomable. Uh, the amount of parents who've had to bury a child, it's its reached a point now where it's totally unavoidable. I feel like when I was in high school, you knew it was out there and you knew it was bad and it was something people kind of talked about. But, um, you know, also when you're a kid, you have sort of a reverence for people that are hard partiers or doing hard drugs and you think, damn, that they're really wild and that's crazy and that they're a legend and that sort of thing. Because you're young, your brain isn't fully formed, you're making stupid choices, you think you're invincible. That's part of the reason why you try this shit in the first place. Um, it's sad, it's much sadder when you're older and you're out of it and you look back and you realize how many of those people just didn't even stand a chance. Um, and now it's just, it's so much worse now actually. Um, because fentanyl has really come in a lot of it from China and that wasn't around when I was younger. It's, um, it's like heroin, but it's much more lethal and it's dirt cheap. And, you know, I have a friend who, um, I'd known my whole life. He was mentioned in the story. He had been two years sober and he just relapsed over Thanksgiving and died, uh, two days before Thanksgiving um, because there was so much fentanyl in the bag, he couldn't, his body couldn't handle it. Um, and he told me, like, I talked to him when I was writing this just to kind of try to dredge up some memories. And I remember him telling me a few months ago as I was writing it that, you know, if you go down to North Philly now to get dope, uh, it's hard to even find a bag of heroin. I mean, it's just all fentanyl. It's cut with everything. Um, I know three people who, who even thought they were just doing a bag of Coke and they're dead now because there was fentanyl in it. It's everywhere. So now people are really, really starting to get hit much harder. Um, I feel like COVID has obscured some of this. I think also the opioid crisis has been going on for so long now that um, people just kind of forget about it. It's background noise. But, you know, what my situation that I'm describing is just so not unique at all. I mean, this is what it's like in the suburbs of Boston. This is what it's like on Staten Island. This is what it's like in Long Island. Um, this is what it's like in a lot of towns around Philly. Did your friend, did you and your friends agree together that you weren't going to try that stuff? Like, was there a line you drew in the sand or? Yeah, there was, there was like a mini pack between me and like three or four of my best buddies where we were like, once shit started getting really hardcore in 11th grade, we're like, you know, you better not be doing that. I don't want to see you doing oxys. Like we were still partying really hard, but uh, a few of our buddies had started to really, really drift and things were getting out of control and we were worried about them. And so you, you, you check on each other and you try to, you know, if you find out one of them had veered too far, you try to get together and you're like, what the fuck are you doing? But, um, you know, you're 16, 17, you, 
you know, you can't be responsible for other people. You try, but um, those forces are so insidious and they were everywhere. I know this is a hard question, um, but you left. And am I right that a lot of people didn't? Was that unusual? Uh, Yeah, more or less, yeah. Was that a dispositional thing? Is that just the kind of person that you are? Or did you feel like if you didn't leave, this was going to happen to you? No, it wasn't that dramatic. I mean, look, I went to college. Um, No one in my family has done that before. Most of my friends are didn't go to school. Um, a lot of them, you know, it's a blue collar family. It's a sort of a blue collar town. A lot of my friends became welders, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, they're fine. They're not doing drugs. They're good. Like I just, I just didn't want to, I just wanted to get out and, 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 you know, live my life and go to school. I don't think it was like this calculated thing where it's, you know, like a movie and I'm like, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to die. Um, I don't think that we had that kind of, um, perspective. We didn't, you know, we were still teenagers. We were still in it. Uh, it looks much crazier to me now, 10 years later, I I'm 28 now, um, looking back on it. And, and even to the ones who have, even to my friends who are still there, you know, we meet up for beers or on holidays and stuff. And it's like, we'll talk about it. And it seems crazy to them too, without even having left. I mean, it's really more about the, um, benefit of age. You have some friends who are there and totally fine, and this isn't a part of their lives anymore. And then there are others who never quite shook it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a part of your life because we think back on all the people that we love that aren't here anymore. Um, And there's still always stories of people that, you know, kicked it, but you never really kick it. I mean, addiction is something you fight all the time. So there are friends that we worry about that... um, this still could come for. I mean, it's not over at all. But the friend of yours that recently passed away, had you been worried about him? Did or how, did you think he was sort of safe? Um, he had been doing really well for a long time, but um, his path was really, really hard. So, you know, always he was worried about. But um, he'd been through so much that he seemed sort of invincible. So it was really, really devastating. Um, and... There's another friend who was mentioned in the story that passed away as well. Um, and he had been clean too, and he felt himself start to spiral. And uh, he went to the local clinic and they turned him away because all the beds were full. Um, that's how that's how much the town is in the grips of this thing. And these people were alive when I wrote this fucking thing like eight months ago. And when you go back, does it feel like, like when you go back to visit your, obviously your family's there. So you're going back to visit your family, but like, you know, that that specter is going to be there when you get there. Like that's, that is an, another thing you're coming home to. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not like, you know, oppressive at all times. I mean, now it's certainly, everything feels different after, you know, this last death, but, um, it's just one of those things. It's almost quotidian, the horror of it. I mean, it's just constantly in the background. Um, you have these conversations with people. Oh, when was the last time you heard from so-and-so? Oh, shit, she's not doing so good. Um, you know, it's just it's just a fact of life there, as it is for so many places in America. And, you know, when you're just sort of, you're, you're in D.C., that's where you, that's where you're based now. Um, and every once in a while you'll just like see something on Facebook or hear hear from a friend and it'll bring it, it'll bring it to the fore again. 
Yeah, um, definitely. And sometimes it's people that you're not even friends with, but you just, you know, you went to high school with. It's sort of a small town. Everybody knows each other. And sometimes people pass away and like people you're you're in your group chat with your friends and people will be like, Jesus, I didn't even know she was using you know, it's it's weird how how it's still around. And like I said, because fentanyl's on the scene now, it's much deadlier. Um, so I think with other drugs, people can wind out decades of their life as an addict. But this thing is just it, it doesn't work like that. And it feels like there's no like there's no end in sight. Like there's not like there's some <laughs> historical change coming or like people doing really good work to help cities out. Have you heard any success stories of cities getting pulled out of this? No, it's not. I, I mean, the Department of Justice is now finally like bringing the hammer down on the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. And, you know, the Times is reporting how intertwined, you know, McKinsey was in all this. And the whole thing was manufactured. And like, it seems like, yeah, I mean, some people are going to have to start to answer for it. But that's not a solution to stop what's happening out there now. I mean, like, it just feels hopeless because of fentanyl. I know I keep bringing that up, but... I don't see how it gets better. Do you think that talking to, I mean, there's, there's not a lot that one person can do, but when you go back and you talk to like your siblings who are there or your families who are there and you just like talk about how bad things have gotten, is there any resolve that you hear amongst those people to like sort of concert effort to keep themselves from slipping down that you didn't hear before? Or does it feel like... Um, I'm always amazed that when I hear about kids, um, you know, when I was home for the funeral, my uh, my sister, she we got home from the funeral and she turned her phone off airplane mode and immediately started, all these texts started popping up. And here, while we were at the funeral, another one of her friends, 19 years old, died. And she had to turn around and get back in the car and go to the house where everyone was gathering. This is two hours after we had been to a funeral. And then two weeks later, another friend of hers, 19 years old, died. Um, From the same thing? Same thing. And um, I am always, you know, as you get older, you don't know what the kids are doing or thinking. But, yeah, it's always shocking to me that it's still with the amount of deaths and the number of deaths there that um, I'm always surprised when I hear how many teenagers are still dropping dead because it feels so out in the open now that you'd think it would be enough to scare people straight, but that's just not how the teenage brain works. And like I said, it starts off small. It never starts off, you know, sophomore in high school thinks I'm going to go pick up a bag of heroin. That's just not how it works. It's so bizarre because you think about the last 10 years and sort of a national scale and so much has changed. Um, Like certainly the last four years, I felt like it's everything's moving at warp speed it's bizarre to think that this town and town, so many towns like it, towns that make up the country have stayed in this state the whole way. Does that feel strange to you? I mean, being in this city, which is moving at such a different pace and dealing with so many, I mean, there's so many different worlds bombinating around Washington um, to just like have the, have that speed shift whenever you think about going home or when you go back there? Um, yeah, I don't, I think this is true of small towns everywhere and suburbs everywhere. And even outside the opioid crisis that when you leave a place like Washington or New York, you realize that 
you know, life moves at a different pace there and that people there aren't glued to every little detail of what's happening here. And it's humbling and it's good and it's a good way to keep perspective and get in touch with what's really going on out in the country. I think the way that the opioid crisis, um, you know, kind of flavors that is that it's not the usual just, hey, life's moving on and we have other shit to focus on, not what every word out of Trump's mouth. It's it's also because uh, people are just grieving and they're under attack. And, you know, who gives a shit what's going on in Washington? It was the same, you know, I was in high school under Obama and it's only gotten worse under Trump and nobody thinks it's going to get better now. But these are, when you went back, because you, you covered... Didn't you cover your own your own town when you were covering covering the 2020 election? Yeah, I did. I did a piece for the New York Times about um, Pennsylvania, you know, a week or two before the election, um, just saying that, you know, I'm from these suburbs right on the edge of Philly. And the polls had Biden up way, way, way ahead. And it just seemed completely wrong to me. So I just kind of spent a couple of days just town to town, checking it out, talking to people um, and just basically writing that I think it's going to be much, much, much closer than the polls show. And that, you know, in the end, Biden did squeak it out. The polls were completely wrong, but he, he squeaked it out. Um, but you know, the support for Trump was much deeper and wider than, than people wanted to think. And the outsiders, I mean, for the past four years, people in Washington would have said that the opioid crisis and the people who have felt like left behind by the country, are part of the people rallying around Trump um, because they feel like they have a savior there or that they feel like they have somebody who listens to them and cares about them. Is that, does that have anything to do with reality? I mean, is there, you said these people, there, there was strong Trump support. Do those two things have to do with each other or is that just sort of an outsider trying to make sense of things they can't really understand? I don't know. I don't know that I have too much of a, a hardened view about that. I mean, the outsider thing, yeah, people feel that way, but, you know, I, I think the majority of people just don't vote at all. I mean, a lot of people were voting for Trump because they thought he was going to tear the place apart, which he did. But um, I don't know how much it's connected to the opioid crisis. And certainly um, I don't know how much he really did for them on that. No, I mean, he did. I, he didn't. He did, Nobody has done anything for them on that. But I mean, well, it was part of like Kellyanne Conway talked about it a lot. She's from South Jersey. She has the same kind of accent as people in my town. Um, Melania said it was going to be part of her portfolio. Uh, Trump went after some of the pharmaceutical companies. You know, I think it was a little bit lip service. Um, I'm sure they did some stuff, but I just didn't I didn't look into it enough. And certainly no one there thinks that no one talks about it that way. They do feel forgotten. And they feel forgotten. And the same people who feel forgotten feel support for Trump. Or is that wrong? Are these two separate groups in the same place? I don't know. It might be conflating too much. I'm not really sure. I have an educated opinion about that. What do you mean they feel forgotten? Well, I just mean, you know, if you're, you're, you know, going through, you're dealing with the ramifications of this thing for eight years now. You've been pinching every single penny you can and taking out loans to try to save your firstborn son, putting him in rehab wherever you can. The drugs are only getting worse, you know, whatever. Uh, you, you feel alone. You feel like nobody's helping you. I don't know that the answer is that person then turns to Donald Trump. I don't I mean, I think that's a case by case basis, but I, I've, people are struggling with this thing all on their own. 
So does it work out that a lot of the people who are not, not the people who are dying or the people who are really having their lives fall apart, but the people who are carrying the town are the mothers and fathers of those kids or those grownups now? Yeah. Um, I might, and I might actually end up writing a follow-up piece about this, but, um, there is sort of a really, really tragic fraternity of parents now who turn to each other because they know what it's like and they've been through it before and they go to the funerals of other, other kids who pass, you know? Um, and they try to, they try to help the parents. I mean, there's just so many, it's weird too. Cause it's like in my town, you know, y'all grew up together. Y'all went to elementary school together. So you, you know, people's parents a little bit from here or there. Maybe they were a chaperone on your field trip. You know, maybe they give you a ride to the movies when you were in seventh grade or something. Um, and later, many years later, when so many of these people are dead, um, you have to watch these parents kind of come together to try to help each other get through it. Uh, it's devastating. It's, it's absolutely devastating. And every time somebody else from the class dies, it's like just dumping salt straight into an open wound for the other parents who've lost their kid because they see people going through the same exact thing. Have you spoken to them about this? Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like who? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much I'm going to get into it now. Cause I, I, it's just all in a notebook and I might write it up, but, um, you know what it's like to go through that, um, how horrible it is. Um, a lot of them talk again about the stigma, which I brought up earlier. Um, it's hard enough to have to go through that with your own kid. Um, but other people who don't know what it's like, if they start to turn your back on you or they treat your child like it's less than because, you know, the kid's doing drugs, you know, that kind of stigma, it's still intact in a lot of ways. And I think that's just a totally, you know, unnecessary burden on top of everything else they're dealing with. Um, a lot of them have had to drive down to this neighborhood called Kensington, which is really like the most dangerous neighborhood in Philly. It's in North Philly. It's like 15 minutes north of Center City. And it's just a complete open-air drug market. Different blocks sell different drugs. And you walk down the street and people shout out on the porch what they have. And um, when you're like really, really, really in the throes of addiction and you go down there and you end up just living out there on the street or an abandoned house because it's just you're just a dope central and a lot of these mothers have had to drive into these neighborhoods looking for their kids. Sometimes they find them, they drive down there, they pray to God, they don't find them dead laying on the, you know, laying in the gutter. Um, and you can drive down there any day of the week and there's people just asleep or dead on the street. And they pray that's not going to be their kid. Sometimes they find the kid, they can get them back in the car and bring them home. Sometimes all they can do is just get the kid to take some food and a new coat and they just pray next time when they drive down there. Their kid will will be in a different state of mind and will get in the car and come home. Um, a lot of them have had to do this, and it's a terrifying neighborhood, not only because of the drug use, but it's just completely crime-stricken. I mean, people get shot in broad daylight there. It's, it's hell. So a lot of them have been through that, and they talk to me about that. How far is that from where you grew up? It's like a 25-minute drive, 20, 25 minutes without traffic. Um, Was it like that when you were there? Like when you were growing up, was that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was doing a lot of bad stuff in high school and kind of falling down the well myself, I had spent a few nights going down there with people to pick up drugs. And um, it's terrifying. Did you know then, like, 
holy fuck, this is really starting to get insane. Was that one of the... Yeah, for sure. But again, there's almost was like a dark allure to it because you're a kid and you're listening to rap music and it's really hardcore down there and it's the city and it's, you know, it's a new, it's a new thing. It's like the next thing. It's like an exploration. Did you ever just have the living shit scared out of you? Was there ever an instance where you were like, holy shit, this is way too far? Or was it just a lot of little things along the way? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I write about um, this one incident in the story where I was down there and like this cop did just grip me up. And uh, yeah, and he, he called my parents, which, you know, is like an amazing, amazing thing that he did that. And I f- almost feel guilty. I mean, imagine if every kid... Um, who had a run in with the police had that kind of experience. I mean, he was a little violent, but ultimately he, he, he called my parents and, and kicked me out of there. Um, which is an, an immense privilege that that was my run in. Is that because you were white, you think? Oh yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. Could you tell like in your high school that there was a difference between the way the white kids got treated and the way the black kids did? I mean, with regard to the drugs, I mean, um, I'm not sure, you know, to be honest, there weren't that many black kids in my high school. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think race was, um, an element cause it was just so primarily white. But you knew in that instance, like in Kensington, when you got picked up, by, when the cop stopped you, you knew you had a lucky break. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was being treated differently cause I was a white kid from the suburbs. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, but no, I mean, the, the one thing I'll say about opiates, it has really, the addiction has, it does not discriminate between rich, poor, white, black. I mean, it's everybody, everybody. There were a lot, there was a lot of wealth in my high school too. There were a lot of really rich kids and uh, it did not, you know, their, their parents' money did not prevent them from, from falling into it. Have you spoken to any of those parents about what it was like for them or is that really a different, a whole other saga? Um, I didn't, I haven't spoken to them about the socioeconomic aspect of it, but, um, yeah. When you write that next piece, you think that'll be, that'll figure it all, or is it mainly just? Maybe, maybe I should. I mean, maybe it's just a line, but, you know, one sentence or something, but it really doesn't, um, you know, I, I was hanging out with the more blue collar people, but, um, I don't think it, it didn't matter. It honestly didn't matter. When I look back at some of the people who died, um, and some of the ones who struggled the most, uh, some of them were really fucking rich or at least rich by the standards of back then. Well, Sean, I'm really glad that you got out and, um, thank you for talking to me about it today. Yeah. Thanks for having me.